Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Today is September 25th, 2016. It's episode 18, the There Was No Farm, and there's a lot of pinball edition. <laughs> Welcome back, Tony. I'm Dennis, everyone, and uh, Tony, th- there. I thought there was a farm, but, you know, I often, I misunderstand. I misunderstand what's going on. Yeah, you uh, misunderstood what was going on. All the, all those big guys with, with, with sacks and bats and, and my headache. Yeah, you understood, I'm sure. Well, the important thing is that you are well and that you are with us. I am. Because this podcast would have fallen apart without you, despite the firm hand of my guidance. <laughs> so, what have you been doing up, doing while I've been trying to hike home from someplace far up north for the last two weeks? Well, I thought, let's have a t-shirt contest. Uh don't know why I thought that. Oh, actually, I do know why. I had a couple of spare T-shirts from uh, the T-shirt order we tried with the new logo we had designed uh, for that sort of thing. And uh, I thought was, hey, how about I try and get us some more iTunes reviews? So the good news is I was successful. We got more iTunes reviews. The bad news is I only had two shirt sizes. I had a large and an extra large. And so the entries were all in for the large. No one apparently wanted the extra large, which I thought was funny because when I had the planned orders of individuals that were committed to getting shirts ahead of time, that was the plurality of the order. I had more extra larges than anything else. So I thought, oh, that's what people wear now. Apparently not our listeners. So uh, what we did is I ran the largest into random.org's list randomizer to do the drawing. So whatever the number one name was, got the large shirt. And that was Eric Eckhorst. So congratulations to Eric. And then because there was no Excel entry, I took the second name on the list, which was Dylan Mikalski, and offered him the extra large shirt. And he said, sure, he'd tolerate it. And so the shirts are spoken for. And if we ever do that again, I'm going to do it before we order shirts so people can just pick their sizes and and solve that problem. But we did increase the volume of our review count. Uh, not actually, and not everyone who's reviewed us actually entered for the shirt. So we really do appreciate anyone who bothered to give us a review, especially if you knew you couldn't even wear one of the shirt sizes we had. It does help with the searches on iTunes. I even tested it and saw we were popping up more. If you search pinball, you used to not see us at all. We show up now as we should, as we should. We're at least the like eighth best pinball podcast. If I do say so myself. (laughs) So, Anyway, so did that, uh, and then outside of the podcast stuff, uh, not a whole ton. I uh, was at the monthly Pizza West tournament. You were still dealing with the farm, so you weren't you weren't at that. But I placed tenth, which meant I got about halfway through the field and won my money back, which was always nice. I haven't done that in a while. Uh, video game a real wise, bad run yeah. of luck at tournaments lately. You've been uh, really unlucky. Uh, my 403 tournament was a disaster earlier in the month, uh, and we don't talk about that. That had to do with seeding, though, in part, because I you know, it was like everyone but me and one other got a buy, basically, and I lost that round, and then I lost immediately again, which made me the loser, like in the purest, true vanilla extract of the word. So, yeah, uh, I've had it, and I've not been doing that well at Pizza West this year compared to the latter half of last year where I typically won my money back, but... I just think the caliber of players improved, or I've really degraded 
uh, age is catching up with me. So there yeah, is that. You, you've gone through your glory years of, of, of your ability and you're now on I the peaked. decline. Yeah. I peaked. And now I, yep. Now I, I got to have that graceful uh, slump as I start playing for all the really bad teams just to keep getting that paycheck. So, uh, video games. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Battlefield 4. This is really just so I don't degrade too much in everything, and so I can get myself back into fighting shape for when Battlefield 1 drops at the end of October. I don't know if you actually listened to the last podcast when I had Mike on, but we talked quite a bit about Battlefield 1, should you be interested. Yes, I, I, I listened to it once I returned from the farm. Excellent. And the only other uh, news I have about me is I got a new pinball machine. Uh, I uh, bought a firepower uh, that had been in the works for months, actually. And so I'm back up to having four machines. I actually did not – it was out of commission for about a week. The front end of the cabinet was sagging, uh, and I knew that when I I got it. So I bought a dowel rod and and glued that to the cabinet lip, which was basically part of the cabinet had broken off. So that replaced that, shored that up. Playfield's in pretty good shape. Uh, had to deal with some sunken inserts. Uh, looks like uh, one of the flippers is a little uncooperative on its return. I was very confused. It appears that this uh, someone at some point put in a, a Bally flipper install on the bottom instead of a Williams. So once I figured out what spring what springs I needed, that should probably solve that problem. I cleaned the coil and everything else, and it seems to be firing fine. So anyway. Uh, that's pretty much it for now. I'll probably fix it up some more as I can. But there, are, they on occasion there are runs of replacement plastics. Uh, those are all out of stock right now, so it does have a few broken plastics. Uh, nothing that hasn't been patchable, so it looks okay from a distance. But if you look up close, you can see it's definitely got the originals on it. But that's it. What what's been going on with you outside of the farm? Uh, I've mainly been just working around the house and working at work and. Uh, I did pick up a new game on a Steam sale last weekend, and we'll talk about that more in the video game section. I picked up uh, Mad Max ah, yes. and actually gave it a try, and it's not nearly as horrible as I all the reviews I read when it first came out. So either they did a good job of patching it up, or I'm not nearly as critical as some people are. And that's literally everything I've done in the last two weeks. It's not been exciting unless you want to count that i've burned through i am up to book 10 of the wheel of time and i think i was on like book eight last time i mentioned it or book seven yeah that sounds right so that that, takes a while the wheel the wheel of time keeps on turning and it takes a while to turn through all those pages the wheel weaves as the wheel wills Okay, well, I guess let's go ahead and go into our first segment, which will probably be our most massive segment of this episode, and that's pinball, because holy cow, has there been a lot that has happened. Uh, Two weeks ago, it was dead. I had next to nothing to talk about other than what very preliminary stuff we knew about Batman 66, and I've got three news items at least that deserve to have at least some time spent on them. So I guess we should probably start with the most recent one and undoubtedly the most controversial. And that is apparently there is uh, or supposedly apparently there is a new pinball company in play now called American Pinball. Yeah, that's a way to call it. I mean, uh, I'm not 
sure on this. I know they're doing a lot of updates to their website, like some that dropped just this morning, as far as I can tell. Yeah. But it, it's definitely a system that seems... Um, I don't. I, I really don't know. When I first read about this, I just kind of stared at the news, dumbfounded. It, it, it was a complete surprise to me, and it seems like... Well, let's start out. American Pinball is putting out a pinball machine, and it is designed by none other than J-Pop, which seems to be a really shocking thing for a startup to do, because it seems like, you know what, instead of starting off low and climbing, we're going to dig ourselves a big old pit, and we're going to jump down there, then we'll try and climb out. Yeah, I guess... I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to I'm going to try and summarize I I'm I'm pulling information from multiple sources and as Tony noted this stuff is dropping in real time so we don't know what's true we don't know what isn't true we don't know how much of this might be a trolling effort we don't know how authentic this all is if it's a trolling effort it's pretty well executed so kudos to whoever is is doing that if that is indeed the case um, but there, I mean, there are th- certain aspects of it that don't make a lot of sense either, which is why we're so hesitant to all of a sudden just say this is definitely something that is happening. Um, and so source-wise, I'm getting a lot of information from the American Pinball Facebook page. Obviously, the website now actually has some content. Yesterday, last I looked, it was still just join a mailing list, and now they actually have write-ups on their on what their company's about. And then... There were at least four threads running on Pinside that were having discussions about this. So I did actually dive into those to try and figure out. Wow, what was did you put on your fireproof game. suit before you did that? Oh, gosh. I actually uh, – I do uh, regularly follow the old J-pop thread because normally it doesn't have a – it's a very long thread. Don't start at the beginning. But if you ever want to follow a thread, normally that one doesn't have that many posts in a given month. So, But yes, other than that – and there's a lot of – I mean, it's it's sort of interesting because not a whole lot of interpersonal attacking. Uh, a little bit, it is Pinside. They always have that, but yeah, you need to because there's such a a toxicity around J-pop. And for those that aren't familiar, J-pop is just a it's the it's a common well, I guess you could say acronym for John Papaduke, who is a famous pinball designer from the uh, sort of Bally Williams era. He is responsible, is seen as lead design for a number of the top 20 solid state pins that are on Pinside, uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights, Theater of Magic, uh, Circus Voltaire. Those are three of his uh, most famous machines that he worked on. I don't want to go into the whole history about what happened, but he had a he had a company, his own group, Zidware. They were promising that they were going to make certain high-end boutique pinball machines, and none of those machines has been delivered. A lot of people felt it was something of a scheme where he started asking for money for the second machine to supposedly fund the completion of the first, and then there was a third machine to help fund the completion of one and two. And no one has received any product. That's kind of the point. And so things have just sort of stalled since then. My understanding is there is civil litigation. Uh, I don't know how far along it is or anything like that. That's kind of what the thread indicates, but I don't follow it that closely. So American Pinball. We had already seen some stuff about a 
group that was saying their name was American Pinball. They were renting space, I guess, that was associated with Zidware. So people were kind of curious about what was going on with that. And this was a few months ago. Then all of a sudden, someone uh, releases content on Pinside saying that there's a press release and that American Pinball is making a pinball machine. It's going to be Houdini is the theme. It's going to be priced around $7,000. And then on the Facebook page for American Pinball, they do indicate that J-Pop is the designer on the game. Then they also say on the Facebook page later, after after this, but later on, the Magic Girl, which was the name of the first machine that J-Pop was trying to do as Zidware, that they were going to make the buyers of Magic Girl whole by the end of the year. Now, I wasn't clear if all of them supposedly were going to get the machines by the end of the year or that they, by the end of the year, would start getting some people their machines. But there have been people indicating they've heard, been contacted, I believe through email or maybe Facebook in some way, that American Pinball has told some of them, like, buy Pinball Expo in October, you will have your machine. And they released a picture of a couple dozen empty cabinets with Magic Girl art on the sides. So... That's this in a nutshell. Now, before we saw the thing on Houdini and all of that, their Facebook page also said that they were going to uh, be participating at the Global Gaming Expo, also known as G2E. It's kind of a gambling convention in Vegas. And that, that they'd be there, I guess, to show off the machine. And this is where we get into the parts where I'm confused. All right, I'm confused about all of this. We're, we are simple. We're not journalists. We're simple podcasters, and we're going to give you. We're going to do the best that we can here. But here's my issue. So I go to G2E's 2016 website. I don't see American Pinball listed as an exhibitor. I don't see American Pinball mentioned anywhere on the site. In fact, if you search their entire website for the word pinball, you get one hit regarding one man who was once a marketer with Bally. It doesn't have anything to do with American pinball. So that's where I still hesitate as and am so unsure as being able to say, you know, this is all completely verified and not merely a trolling effort. This doesn't mean it's a trolling effort. It just it raises a lot of interesting questions. For example, someone on Pinside indicated that one of the names associated with American pinball is the son of the man who founded Aimtron Electronics. And I believe I found through LinkedIn that this son does work for Aimtron Electronics or the Aimtron Corporation, I believe, is what they're actually known as, uh, you know, what they're incorporated as. Aimtron Corporation is an exhibitor at G2E. So perhaps it's a booth sharing arrangement. Perhaps Aimtron is doing the build for the pinball machine. And the reason why I mention that is I watched the six-minute promo video that Aimtron has on the G2E website. It's available through YouTube as well. It's not particularly interesting, but but they mostly make circuit boards, but they also will do full-in solution construction. And it shows in the video them building gambling devices like slot machines or touchscreen sort of stuff, like gaming. So you could say, all right, well, they may be associated mostly with doing like circuitry solutions, but they're willing to actually be a manufacturer. The website for American Pinball, as of today, when you go there, while the art all over the place is very Houdini-themed, all of the information is about how you can go to American Pinball with your idea, and they will build you your pinball machine. That seems to be their shtick, that they're saying that they're going to be 
they're the boutique manufacturer. You come with the idea. I guess you come with a license. Maybe they help you with a license. There's some discussion on the licensor stuff. But again, I just read this just before we went to air, trying trying to lock it all down as best I could. And it's seems less that they're a pinball design and manufacturing company and more like they're billing themselves as a pinball manufacturing company where you come to them like a, again, uh, citing Pinside, and I don't know who said it, but comparing it to, is it like a site where you go to them and you give them the design and they print your t-shirts? Like what we did with our uh, podcast t-shirts. I don't know. That kind of seems to be how the website's selling themselves. The Facebook stuff, though, is all very oriented to them being what sounds like a more traditional pinball manufacturer, though they self-admittedly want to be on the boutique high-end side of things, which $7,000 price point, that would fit with that sort of line of thinking. I don't know really anything about Houdini other than the little eclipse of art. I don't know if it's a reskin of one of J-pop's failed concepts if it's a reuse of some other past design, if it's wholly original, I don't know. Also on Pinside, and it was one of the threads that has now been locked, but it's the man, Mike, who uh, puts together Pinball Expo in Chicago in October. He indicated that someone who said they were with American Pinball had reached out to him, asking about having the ability to show something at Expo. So there's all this stuff flooding in. I know I'm doing a terrible job explaining it, Oh, well, it's EGP. You know what you get when you listen to us. So, uh, Tony, I guess broadly speaking, now that I have laden people with as much background and is trying to give it as much of a narrative as I could, uh, what are your thoughts? First, that was an amazing info dump. I mean, that was that that was definite wall o text TLDR. Yeah, sorry um, about that, everyone. <laughs> but... Uh, it's a, such a complicated situation. I mean, there's nothing else you can really do but to talk about it, and I don't know if it's even explainable. I think I have a hard time believing that this is what it is or what it seems to be, or it just it seems so insane to me that I cannot fathom. Maybe it is. Maybe it's exactly what it seems to be. Maybe somebody's going to make good with J-pop's mistakes and problems. Maybe they're going to 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 actually do it. But it just seems like a massive troll, almost. I mean, that's when I first read it, before they started adding all this other information, and before all this other stuff started coming out, I just thought it was a massive trolling. I, I thought somebody was pulling a joke and just being evil because... Uh, quite frankly, once people get on the internet, a lot of people turn out to be really evil. So. Right. Well, yeah, and and that's how, I mean, I think that's how a lot of people started with, okay, well, first it's a, a leaked copy of a press release, which as of as of now, I have still, outside of it appearing on Pinside, have not been able to find the press release anywhere else. Okay, you could say, well, it was leaked, so that makes sense. Okay. Well, why on the same day that it's leaked is it now that American Pinball has contacted Expo, which is a month out, less than a month out, is half a month out, wanting space at this point. Why didn't they say anything beforehand? If they're making the Magic Girl buyers whole, why didn't the Magic Girl buyers know that this was in the works? They don't they didn't know. They're now saying they're getting contacted by someone who's claiming to be American Pinball, but I don't understand why they didn't know ahead of time because I thought that there was civil litigation moving. 
And if J-Pop was still trying to produce the machines, which I know when he was interviewed last year on Coast to Coast Pinball, he said it was still his intent, but he saw no clear path on how to achieve it. I would think he'd be keeping people in the loop so that he wouldn't have to spend money on trying to defend against the lawsuit. So I just the way they're I mean, I'm, I'm like you. I could this could all be true, but it doesn't make any sense. It's. You know, maybe I've wor- I've worked in government and nonprofit for too long, and I just don't know how corporate America works. But it just seems really dumb. I don't understand. If you were a new pinball company, I don't understand why you would partner with J-Pop. I I guess I I mean I could in the sense that you say, okay, I want to be a boutique pinball manufacturer. I'm going to put on. Oh, I'm going to be a boutique pinball manufacturer. That's my fancy pants voice. And okay, what name can we get? Well, let's see. Uh, Steve Ritchie, no, he's over with Stern. Uh, Borg, he's over with Stern. Uh, Lawler, oh, he's over with JJP. Okay, so you start like, who's available? And then you go, okay, now who's got a bunch of top-rated games? And we'll go off the pen side list. Oh, well, J-Pop, he's got a bunch of games that are in the top 20. I mean, last I looked, you know, a few episodes ago, three of his games are. So I guess, I mean, I could see why you would want a designer with that pedigree, but... You have to have known, or you think, you would have to have known about all this Zidware baggage that comes along with it. And so what the site says, the Facebook site for American Pinball, is that they are going to make the Magic Girl buyers who are buying into Zidware whole. Why? I mean, don't get me wrong, it, it would be great for them to be made whole, but what company goes goes in and says, you know, J-Pop, you're such a valuable designer, I want... I want you so badly, I'm willing to bail you out. I mean, the numbers in total, and it's not just Magic Girl. There's also the zombie theme game, and there's the Alice in Wonderland theme game that he took money on. It's in excess of a million dollars that he received. Now, Magic Girl is just a small section of that, and we have not seen anything about how the zombies or the Alice people are going to be dealt with, if at all. So we don't know, because Magic Girl was only committed by like 24 people or something. So it was a small run. So bailing out on just Magic Girl is it's doable, but I don't know if that saves you. I don't know if that that doesn't wash your sin away because there's still so many other people that are burned on the other games. So I don't see how it works unless you do all of it. And then I don't see how you as a company go, his name is worth so much that I want him this badly that I'm going to take that baggage on and bail him out financially. I mean, to me, I just, I don't see why you do that when you could just get a contract designer like Dennis Nordham to come in and give you some designs. You know, he doesn't come with a bunch of baggage. He's basically, I don't, I don't mean it in a derogatory way, but he's a pinball merc. He, he, he's, <laughs> he's a gun for hire. He will, you don't need to put him on staff. He'll come and he'll do designs. His designs are popular. He's an established name. He does good work. What's the problem? I, I just, I'm completely flabbergasted that a company would ever say, Hey, this is a really smart business idea let's bring in a tainted name and try and save it by bailing out his his failed company because there's no i mean and are they gonna own the ip i don't i mean uh, i'm trying to see the i mean it's just like taking on a whole bunch of debt and i'm trying to see you know when a company normally does that buys up another company takes on all their debt and stuff there's usually something there some intellectual property that they really want 
I can see the, I mean, I can see the desire to having a designer of the caliber of J-pop, except his name, you have to be really confident that you can salvage his name. I mean, it's just, if you're, a, is, this is not a company that aimed at, op, aimed at operators. It's aimed at the boutique market. It were boutique. It was the boutique buyer community that got burned by him. I don't, you know, it's like, I'm. Uh, what sort of an analogy can I use? It's kind of to me. It's kind of like when the new console generation was starting, and Microsoft shot itself in the foot with its always-on DRM Xbox One stuff, which they all backpedaled on. But there are a bunch of people that still haven't forgiven them. They went to Sony and said, "No, Microsoft that you even contemplated it was wrong, and I can't forgive you." And they won a lot of people back by, but they didn't ever actually, by the time it went to manufacture, they had undone, they hadn't actually burned anyone yet. It was just, that was the announced idea. And then they backpedaled when the backlash was so big. This, these people bought these games years ago and have gotten nothing. And now it's going to maybe be, I just, I don't, I don't know why anyone would, you'd have to be convinced and I have trouble believing that you're a very sane businessman if you allowed yourself to be convinced. I don't. I mean, I don't know. The only thing I can think of, and this is, I mean, this is way, way out there, kind of long shoddy insanity thing, is we're looking at a group that has enough financial muscular backing and enough desire to put itself into play as hard as they can, that they intentionally are going for this damaged product and intentionally planning on making everything right and doing it in a quick enough pattern that when it's done, they can just stand up and go, we did it. You want work? We're ready. Look at what we just kicked out. Look at what we just did. We made this right. We put good stuff out, and we did it because it was the right thing to do. And if you need stuff done, come to us because we've just proven how solid we are and the type of people we are. And that's the only reason I can see somebody actually even going for this. I mean, to start yourself so badly injured, it has to be something designed around the whole play of coming out on top as looking like an actual big player, a primary guy, and somebody that was able to just completely and utterly salvage what seems to be an unsalvageable situation. Because if they successfully pulled it off, if they successfully dumped Magic Girls and the games aren't crap, and drop and, and f- drop their Houdini, and if they successfully drop the Alice in Wonderland and zombies on all those people who who paid off, even if they don't ever make another game for the to be sold, they just get the people who were ripped off covered. They can stand on top of the pile and just say, "Come at me, bro." That's what they'll have. And that is the only possible reason I can see them is if they think they can do this, make everything right, and be standing on the top of everything as a shiny knight, a symbol of just what they are to try and drum up enough business to make up everything that that whole cost them. That's the literally the only reason I can come up is if it's just the biggest PR stab move ever. I would agree that it would be an it would be an incredible PR coup to 
to bail all of that out, I just – but I'm – again, mm-hmm. and maybe it's just because I don't have experience in this industry, but I don't understand the back end of it. I don't see how it's ever worth the price. I mean – Kind of get it from like a, yo, bro, look at me. I'm awesome. I am the pinball white knight. Prepare yourself sort of thing. But I don't I don't see how when you are clearly by your own language, American pinball, saying that you're a boutique company, you're pricing at $7,000 a pin, that you're going to sell enough volume. I mean, how many are you going to, how many machines are you going to have to sell before you even get back to zero? And that's not count. I mean, I'm just thinking the BOM, the bill of materials. I'm not even thinking the labor and everything else that it must take for all the employee, all the time to build up a new. I mean, look at Spooky and how careful and cautious. And we're going to talk a bit about Spooky later on in the show. But look at how careful and cautious that they are being. I'm just, I'm trying. You would have to have some mega cash to throw around. But if your goal is to make money, I don't see why you would ever do it. It seems so reckless. Doesn't there's so many safer ways to make money in pinball than to do it this way. So I could see it more from an altruistic argument like, but then why didn't they present it that way? Why didn't they say that they were doing the magic girl thing until pin sites started blowing up and getting furious and they started getting like 18 one-star reviews on Facebook because Pinside was flooding onto the site telling telling everyone to stay away that they're working with J-Pop. They didn't come out of the gate and say, "Hey, we're American Pinball." We're going to be doing a Houdini pin. Yes, J-Pop's involved. Guess what? We're making all you Magic Girl fans whole. We're going to make you whole. They didn't do that. They only reacted regarding the Magic Girl thing after everyone started attacking them. They were keeping it in the dark, including apparently from everyone who was supposedly supposed to get a Magic Girl. So I ju- it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense how they're going about – even if they made all these business decisions, which don't make sense, the order in which they are doing everything, the way they're announcing it, the way they're handling the PR campaign so far seems stupid to me. But I'm not a marketing person. I don't know. It's not selling me. I'll tell you that. But I'm just one person. Well, yeah, and I, like I said, I didn't think say that that's what's happening on what I think's happening. It's just literally the only thing I could think of that would make any of the rest of it make sense, and even then, it's a stretch. I just think if this is what it is, it's a terrible, terrible ploy, and I think it's we haven't seen a single play field yet. We haven't seen anything yet that I'm not willing to say is completely a something that would be within the capability of somebody doing just out of evil. I don't know of anybody who's seen anything physical, just pictures and other things. I I don't know. It could be a troll. It could be real. It could be just amazing uh, uh, altruism. Uh, we don't know. And I think that more than anything, this is something that's going to be dominating pinball news probably for the rest of the year until this whole thing blows up at the bare minimum until G2E, which is, you know, tomorrow or until Expo, since there's a lot of stuff, uh, people saying they're supposed to be talking to them at Expo. But I think no matter what, this is a definite 
change to the whole pinball industry, no matter what this ends up being, just news-wise for the next month or two. Because even if this all turns out to be just utter crap and it's a giant trolling effort, people are going to be talking about it for a long time. Oh, sure. I mean, it's going to, if it is nothing more than than a big trolling, it's going to go down as one of the best executed ones, at least in pinball, uh, that we've ever seen. Just because so many pieces have been have been working together and obviously not working together to the smoothness that makes you think, Oh, it's not a troll because everyone's really ultra suspicious though. Given the properties and names involved, it's almost impossible to not be suspicious at the, I mean, honestly, the only way you would not have suspicion at this stage, I think would have been if you had had a JJP or Stern say, we're doing the bailout. Right now. And, and, and see, and that's the other thing is what, I don't understand why they'd press release anything if this was, if they were going for the for all this, I would think the very first thing that anybody would have heard would be when one of the litigators leaked something from uh, uh, the lawsuits where the comp- where somebody's coming forth and saying something, or when they sat down and said and and made their big announcement and showed completed machines it's like here's every completed magic girl ready to ship we're in con- we're contact in contact with the stuff here's the line with all the half completed uh zombies here's the where here's the plans that we're going to be dropping the Alice in Wonderlands we're this far along we've got this done everything's set but that's not what happened and i don't think that's going to happen i honestly you know, there's a limited number of Magic Girls. If they put out Magic Girl as trying to make things better, okay, that's fine. I don't see how they could possibly put out the other two also, but I don't see how any of this works anyway. So I think this is definitely going to be something that we're going to be talking about. And the way things have been dropping, there's probably going to be a whole bunch of new information. This is all going to be bad by the time this episode comes out and anybody hears it anyway. Yeah, so. I guess in a way, I'm I'm kind of glad that we're getting relatively breaking news. I mean, as a biweekly, we don't we're we're very subject to we we adhere to our schedule. That's what we do for our consistency, and so it's always neat to have happening news. Normally, news and pinball does not move this fast. We kick ourselves because an announcement comes out on Monday and we do our show on Sunday. But yeah. but in this case, all the information's evolving quite a bit. I mean, I think Expo will be the big uh, big breaking point. I don't know yet if any pinball people are going to make it to G2E. Obviously, there are collectors who are in Vegas. I don't know what G2E's policy is. It's really weird to have the idea of a pinball machine at a gambling expo. Well, you know, it wouldn't have been weird back in the 60s. <laughs> but, but and, you know, it's just not... I think as of Expo, there will be a better sense as to whether or not the company is in is legit, and there will be a better sense as to whether or not they have a plan that actually makes any sort of meaningful sense, or if they're a legit company, but their plan makes no sense, and that this is just some more pie-in-the-sky stuff, which, uh, that's being generous. A lot of people will see it as a con, because... That's what Zidware is viewed, you know, and, and Skit B, and that this is, I mean, that's the light this is going to be viewed in. And there are people that will never pre order from American Pinball. They'll always want to only be able to pay and pick up the machine right away, sort of thing. So, again, they're needing all this money up front. And just, I mean, it's so, it's so hard. It's so hard. You look at Jersey Jack, they had to take the pre orders on Wizard of Oz, they had to take the pre orders on Hobbit, and they still had to get bailed out during the Hobbit build by having outside investors come in. It's, it's, I mean, 
it's a I just I don't I don't understand. I if you had really deep pockets, I can envision it being subsidized. I just don't envision why. I don't understand why you would ever do it. And I'm sure we're going to get more information coming out over the course of the next well, I mean G2E. I mean, we'll probably have there'll probably be information out by the middle of this week. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think this is just something we're going to have to keep an eye on and see where it grows from here. Who knows? Maybe it'll I don't know. Yeah, the whole thing is extremely confusing. And speaking of confusing, I think I might have said Aimstar at some points there. What I meant was Aimtron. It's the Aimtron Corporation is at G2E. The association is with Aimtron Electronics, not Aimstar. I think I was thinking Ameristar, which is a casino in the area. So it just gets stuck in my head. But anyway, enough about American Pinball, even though that was the is fascinating and the latest, ultimate latest news. Let's move to the pinball news from last week, or excuse me, last podcast, but had gained further information right after we went to air. And that is Batman 66 again. Uh, We knew about Batman 66 while you were off in Farmville, but we didn't know a lot. We didn't know the pricing. And so the pricing is now known. There's the, we knew there was going to be the three tier model, a premium and LE, and then a new thing called the super LE. Uh, The premiums, the MSRP is $8,600. That's a thousand dollars more than the Ghostbusters premium MSRP was the LE model is $10,000. That's $1,200 more than Ghostbusters LE. And the super limited edition is $15,000. And it's that limit of 30. Now, additionally, while they initially indicated that the super LEs were going to be invite only, Stern created an application process allowing people to submit an application plus a video to request the right to purchase a super limited edition version of the machine. Uh, the application I thought was interesting because it also indicated that Stern has the right to buy back the super limited edition if you want to sell it within the first 18 months, which is a first for pinball. So, Tony. Thoughts on the price, thoughts on the application process, thoughts on Batman in general? Well, the price is, we'll see what happens with uh, Ellie and premium pricing. If that's a more permanent change that they are putting into play due to the LCD and the differences needed in, you know, coding and doing video and all that stuff for the LCD, um, I could see them putting that as a permanent change to the other two. I think this the the special limited edition price is just it's a 30th anniversary edition. It's something that they're going over the top with and I'm not worried about it being some I'm not one of those people who's panicking that oh they're getting rid of pros and this is going to be the whole new pricing model and there's always going to be a $15,000 machine and there's always going to be a this and there's always going to be a no, I could see the LE and premium pricing being nudged up, but I think they sell so many pros, and I think the pro pricing is probably at just about where it should be for what it is. Um, when it comes to the application, I I think it's a PR gimmick. Uh, that's all it really is. I'm positive that they have at, probably at least 20 of the 30 machines they already have people picked out to offer it to. And I think more likely than not is what it is, is they will do offers. And if those people don't want those machines, the uh, applications might be used to get 
or to take care of the uh, any machines that were not picked up by the people they were originally going to offer to. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they are going to do all 30 of the application way, but it seems a little silly to me that that's how they're going to handle these 30 special editions. It's like, okay, you have to have $15,000 and be willing to show us, show us how much you love us type stuff. Um, the buyback provision is one of those things. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of places do buyback provisions with stuff. It's real common in, in like, uh, real estate. Um, uh, most famously, I know like Ferrari does a buyback. So if you sell your Ferrari within the first two years, uh, the dealers will buy it back from you. So I don't think that's crazy for the S special. Yeah. For the SLEs. I mean, that's, it just seems like it's a, it's a super big, super special thing. And they're trying to target exactly where those are. And if you decide to sell your SLE off, they would rather have it back and send it to somebody else who went through or who was on the SLE list. I don't have a real problem with the buyback provision. I don't have a problem with the SLE pricing. I just think the application thing is kind of silly, but I'm sure lots of people have done it. I know you've put yours in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll get to that. Um no pricing uh I don't care about the SLE price. I don't care if SLEs have become a commonplace thing or they, I mean, I, I agree with you. I lean towards that. This is part of the 30th anniversary, uh, special sort of promotional idea and that we're not going to see an SLE on every model. If there was an SLE on every model, I wouldn't care. It's just, it's not, it's not targeted for someone like me. And I, so I don't care about the price because it's a whole new tier. I'm sure there are people that are deeply upset who feel they have to own the best, they have to own the most collectible, and that they cannot just go out and buy an SLE like they can buy an LE probably offends them. And if they can't own the best, they might not own anything at all. I can't imagine ultimately this costs them anything in the way of sales. I I, don't see how it would. Yeah, that's that's nuts. I just, I mean, I, I kind of, I get it. If you want something, it's pretty like, I, well, I want the most ultra. Rare. The thing is the limited were limited. And so that you were able to put a deposit down six months before the theme was announced. I, you know, I guess kudos to you for being semi clever in your uh, technique, but there are plenty of collectible hobbies where things are super ultra rare. And a lot of times they're super ultra rare because they're mistakes. Like I'm thinking in coin collecting where all the most valuable coins of modern coinage are because there were mistakes and you can't just go and get on a list for that stuff. So I don't have a lot of sympathy with that argument, but again, I'm not that type of collector. So I would never be sympathetic anyway, because it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit my mindset. The nature of the price shift, I think is a more interesting discussion. My personal sense is that this is a new pricing norm, but I'm only basing this off of that stern made the decision to keep calling these premiums and LEs, just like all the prior titles. And so since they didn't name them like ultra premium and um, cool LE, you know, they kept, they kept the same exact phrasing and, and dropped the, I mean, I agree with you. The pros are going to be back. The pros that the Batman 66 wasn't seen as a good operator license. I, and I wouldn't think it would be. And so they're just not doing that this time. I get it. But you know, whereas like Spider-Man VE, because it's Spider-Man VE, it's not called premium, it's not called pro, 
they could put it at a price that didn't have to be the premium price or the pro price. They could, you know, they could have done any price they want. I think it's odd to use your branding, your category branding, and upscale the price and expect someone like me to think that you're ever going to drop it back down again. Doesn't mean it won't happen, but I could see them saying, Hey, we got LCD screen now. So that's your justification right there. Even though I personally do not subscribe to the idea that acquiring a whole bunch of laptop size LCD screens is somehow more expensive than dot matrix displays. But you could. Well, well my thought there is just it's going to require a change in coding and a change in probably a change in how they do um, licensing purchases also. For licensed stuff, you're going to have to change your licensings because you're going to have to get actual full-on uh, video clips and this and that. So I'm not saying that is the reason why. It's just I can see arguments for it, whether I fully agree with them or not. I uh, I mean, I, I guess. I'd say I guess. I mean, they did the full – they had the full video clips for Iron Man and Game of Thrones. They just converted them to dots, but it's still straight out of the movie and shows, so they were already doing true. it. Very true. And the programming of how the machines work is the same. It still switches and optos and all of that. So it's – I mean – I guess I could see it if someone's going to say, well, we're going to do all and not just hand-drawn art for the playfield and back glass, but we're going to do hand-drawn animation. We're actually going to make our own cartoons and we're going to air cart. I mean, that it would have to be that. And no one's asking for that. So, well, there probably is someone asking. I'm not asking for that. So I don't care. I don't buy it. I don't buy that. It's a licensing change issue. I can see how you can spin it. And people who don't know any better are going to go, oh, look, more tech. It must be more expensive. And it's like, no, this is where the rest of the world moved already. You could, I mean, they could still do dots and just switch to LCD screens and, in my opinion, save us money. But, the, you know, whatever. I, I mean, that's how I do it on the virtual cab is I use an LCD screen and I emulate the dots and it looks fine. But, it, you know, it could be, there could be more costs in there. I'm skeptical, but okay, it's possible. Uh, will pro pricing change though? Because there is no pro on the Batman 66. So we don't know. So I think it's possible, even if I am right in my guess that it is a new pricing norm, like this is the new premium price, this is the new LE price, that wouldn't necessarily mean that they have to have a new pro price. And so if it followed the pattern that we're seeing with Batman 66 on the premium and LE, you would expect to see a pro price increase, but it wouldn't be like $1,000 more. I'd guess it'd probably be between 400 and 700 just based off of how the LEs went up 1200 the premiums went up 1000 And again, these are all MSRP. I don't know what the actual acquisition price changes were. I've, I'm assuming that they're proportional, but I don't, I don't know. So anyway, I'm hedging that the pro price would actually increase because the pro units are geared towards the operator market. And everything else that Stern has been doing here has seemed to be experimentation on how well they can squeeze that ultra boutique style collector market. And they sell more, I believe they've repeatedly stated that they sell far more pros than any other unit type. And I don't think Stern wants to lose the low, well, you know, this feels weird to say because of how expensive pinball machines are, but they don't want to lose the low spend market. They are the they're the cheapest game in town on that. And I think they want to stay that way. So why not try and still have your stripped down, cheap operator friendly pro versions and push 
your super LEs or uh, more advanced LE versions and just maybe continue to exploit the difference between those units rather than just like raise the bar, so to speak, on all of them and raise the price on all of them. And then you start uh, because I think they must be thinking at, at some point they're going to start losing the they're not going to make enough on the higher prices versus the number of people they've pushed out. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it could be. And then also, I mean, they are doing this machine in collaboration with Kapow. So it it could also be a reasoning behind the price increase here. Mm -hmm. I think the big thing to see is going to be the next game announcement. And is when it's going to become where we'll tell for sure. I mean, obviously, we'll know for sure if it's a permanent change or not with the next actual game announcement. But... I don't know. With the prices that JJP's selling at and the prices that seem to be the market is willing to accept at this time, them doing a price increase on... I, I can see it happening. I mean, that's what they're doing, especially depending upon how they are adjusting their machine output and their... Uh, factory force setups for everything over the court changing from lc dots to lcds if that's having to make any changes to how they're doing things i'm not i don't know i can't bring myself to really put a huge guess on if this is going to be a one-off or a permanent i i hope it's a one-off i think i can see them doing it permanently it's just i don't know there's, you know, pinball's just crazy right now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, no, I thought the the involvement, the collaboration with Kapow could be a cost that they have to embed in this. Uh, I mean, I, I would even, I want to think that. I want to. I want to lean that way. I just, I don't understand why they use the premium LE branding if they didn't mean to set this as the new standard. Um, but they've given some indication that this is the is one time. So Stern's actually been suggesting that the new prices won't be as high as the Batman. That doesn't mean there won't be new price increases, but that they won't be as high as what we're seeing out of Batman. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I I would be cautious though. I I think a lot of people have been suspecting that the LCD specifically was going to be an uh, seen by Stern as an excellent excuse to raise prices, and it's just it's getting a little frustrating because the prices have been going up quite a bit since 2010 anyway so while they probably held their prices steady for longer than they should have now it just sort of seems like the the numbers keep creeping up on almost every release so it's a little concerning obviously for those that are pocketbook sensitive let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the application though since you did bring it up uh in the context of uh, I did. Uh, I did note on the last episode that I didn't care that they were doing invite only SLE model. I don't. I don't care about that. I don't even care that they decided that people should have to decide if they were going to buy or not before even seeing the machine. I find it ridiculous, but I, I don't care because again, I'm not the person that they're targeting with that. But the app, this application thing, that's it. Dumb. It be dumb. <laughs> I okay. Uh, the buyback provision, uh, your context regarding Ferrari and stuff, I think is very interesting. I'm a little confused on how they plan to enforce it. With cars, it's a lot easier because registrations are tracked. 
this seems somewhat unenforceable. I mean, I guess they could troll Craigslist and see if you're trying to sell it, but they've never, it's never to my knowledge been done in pinball. So I find it somewhat offensive that they felt the need to bring it up. Well, Um, I mean, seeing as I think it's less of a, I think it's more of a, the, we are creating these 30 super special ones and we want to control them because, I mean, not control them. I guess that makes it sound really evil. But I think it's like the, just like, you know, when Ferrari kicks out a limited edition Ferrari, that's something that they're all about, uh, protecting and keeping exactly where it goes to. And I don't, it depends upon how they do the, do the, uh, uh, buyback provisions it will be how enforceable it is. I mean, I know like with like real estate and such with the buyback provisions, it's basically a, there's a list of rules that have to be followed. And the same thing with the cars. It's not like you can trash a car and then go, Oh yeah, you said you were going to buy this back for whatever percentage of the thing it is. And until we actually see the the buyback provisions, I don't know. I we won't be able to tell. Yeah, I I just think it's tacky. I don't see the I don't see the point. They didn't do it with the LE models. Well, no, but the LE. See, the thing. My my thought here is the the these thirty SLEs are not about Batman sixty six so much as they are about Stern. So they're more of a specialty thing that Stern's one going to want to know where they are because it's about their 30th anniversary. It's just what? they chose to do it on the Batman 66 platform as a special edition. Then I don't I don't understand why they don't do what they initially said and then pick 30 people that they trust that they want to have buy the machines and if any of them sell them I guess sooner than they think is appropriate they never get invited again I I don't. I think they have I I think they I think they've already got names picked I think the app I think the whole application thing is PR fun and as a way of handling any machines that the people they have picked don't want. Oh, so you think you actually think that it's conceivable that no one who submits an application would get an SLE. I think it's conceivable. Yeah. Hmm. I hadn't contemplated that. That's interesting. I'd have to go back through the application thing, but at no point did I see anything anywhere in it that stated that all that, that any of them would be picked out of the application. Uh, the people who put in applications. Yeah, that's a no. That's a good point. Let's go and shift a little bit more on the away from the the buyback the buyback element because again that one's never going to directly impact me, so it's not a big deal. You mean uh, from, you're not? You know, gonna, what if your application gets picked though? Uh, they they would be extremely foolish to pick the application. But we're 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 almost to that point. We're almost to that. <laughs> point. But before we jump into that, I wanted to to talk about how for me. I could see doing an application like this if you wanted to run a contest to try and win a machine. Be, be an SLE or a regular LE or a pre, I don't, I don't really care, but asking for, you know, like these videos promoting like how much you love Stern and how much you love Batman and showing off what your lineup is and asking if you've ever met Gary Stern. I, I don't have a problem with that if it's like a contest, a real contest, and you get a bunch of marketing tools. Well, like we did with the t-shirt thing. Here, you can win free t-shirts. There's no cost to you to enter. 
We get iTunes reviews out of it, which we want. You know, we didn't even say how good of a review you had to give us. You could have given us a bad review and entered. I don't know why you'd want to wear one of our shirts if you hate us, but you could have. And, but that's not what this is. This is you jump through all of these hoops and explain and, I mean, grovel, I guess. You grovel and then they will bless thee with the right to give them $15,000. I, I just, I find, I mean, I use the word tacky up around with the buyback provision. I just, that's how it feels to me is that's what this is. It's just a tack. I don't, it doesn't, if it was a contest to win something, then I see the fun and all that. But this is a contest to give them money. It's not like you get a discount. At least they didn't advertise you get a discount. And if you did, they should have, because then it would have been like, oh, cool. I get a coupon. The SLE, I could win the right to buy an SLE at LE pricing. Holy cow, that's awesome. I love Batman. Instead, it's like, here, do all this stuff, and then maybe you can play and rub elbows with the big boys and still give me your $15,000 retail. I just, I think it was, I think it was a misstep. I don't see the upswing to doing the application this way. I don't get, I don't get how it makes Stern look good. I don't, I don't see it being anything other than a PR thing. I think it's purely PR. I mean, I, I pulled the application up and I see it as being just a way to get, uh, video and stuff that can be used for promotion and to say they're doing run in a big contest. I don't think it's anything special. And also I noticed on here that it's, um, the buyback, it looks like it's a, it's first right option. So, so if you bought, so it's like you spent your $15,000, you bought your Batman 66 SLE and you decided that, you know, I think I'm going to sell that and I think I can get 20,000 for it. You would have, you would offer it to Stern first and say, I'm selling this for $20,000. And Stern would say, yeah, okay, we'll give you $20,000. Or Stern would say, no. And then you go, okay. But the thing is, is if you sell it for less than 20,000, you would have to offer it to Stern again because they've got the first option to buy the game back. I is think yes. I know, I think I know soon to read that, that level of negotiation into it yeah i I because i don't see the value of the of having a buyback provision i think the buyback provision is to stop people from flipping the machine too early which means i think in the final contract language they're gonna say their buyback provision is if you want to sell it they have the right to first buy it back at x rate and x rate will be some depreciated value yeah. Well, I think it, it would be fair. I, fair in the sense of true, not like ridiculous depreciation, but designed so that you can't take their product. They seem to be trying to prevent people from taking their product and selling it for more than they sell it for, which I completely understand. It's just, I, that's why I think the prices have, are going up. They're trying to price out the secondary market, which I understand from a business standpoint. It makes strategic sense. I don't know about doing things like this to control. It seems like more. Bad well, if they did this worth. to everything except for the SLEs, I'd be more worried. Because, uh, see, the way I'm looking at it is, uh, I know at one of my former uh, jobs I had years and years ago, we had a uh, uh, right of first refusal to some land. And every time any every time any other company made a offer on that land, the uh, people who owned it, before they could say, so if somebody came up and was like, you know what? We want this land. We'll give you $9 million for it. They would come to us and say, this company is going to pay $9 million for that land um, unless 
you want to pay $9 million for that land. In which case you would pay the $9 million and then we would have that land. Or you would say, no, no, we're we're not going to, we don't think it's worth that. And they would sell it to the other, to the other company. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I could see, I can see why they would decide to do it. I just, I don't, with just these 30, I don't even know if it was worth, I don't know if it was worth the discussion they're having about it to do it. I don't. I don't know if I it's worth know. the discussion we're having about it. Well, just probably probably not because I don't. It's never going to directly affect me. It's just I find it curious. I find it curious that they didn't try and extend it across all of the LEs. I find it curious that they haven't announced exactly what the buyback stuff will be. Again, with it just being thirty, though, that's not as curious to me. Yeah. Anyway, I only this. I probably would have completely. Well, I'm sure I'd have seen something eventually, but I probably would have overlooked all of this. But it was getting discussed a lot and social media. And so you kept referencing my application. We need to clarify. I do not have an application. So that's why I know I'm not going to win the opportunity to give 15,000 of my dollars to Stern because I did not actually submit a paper application. Now I did create a video, but I don't think Stern will like it. So, I mean, they they might literally like thumbs up it to act cool, but I don't think they would actually truly like it. Uh, and it, I didn't submit it to Stern. I didn't give it to them. So because they own all the videos, incidentally, they get to own the video, uh, which made sense from a PR standpoint. But I did not give them a copy of the video to own. Uh, what happened was I noted that uh, Don from the Pinball Podcast, who guest hosted here back on episode 15, he on one of the social media platforms had been expressing a lot of concerns with the application, criticizing a lot of the elements of it. And that day was the day I saw your farm video that you put up on our Facebook page. And so I had initially been planning to try and record a response that I didn't have a good dictator military uniform to put on and dress up as. And I was really tired when I got from home from work. So instead, I thought, oh, I should do a video, kind of like an application video, to Stern. And so I just recorded a little video, showed off a few of my pins, and I just I put it on the EGP uh, YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel now, which people can see from our uh, our website, where we can throw content. Uh, and so we only have a couple of videos up there right now, including this. But I uh, I just put it on there, put it on Facebook, and I tagged Don so he could see it because it was all in reference to what he had been complaining about that day, and that was it. I wasn't doing anything else with the video. It was later that night he sent me a message and said, "Oh, you you're you got picked up on fun with bonus." Uh, apparently carried the video as part of a, a a piece they as a little summary of people trolling Stern, which I hadn't thought of myself so much as a troll as a kind-hearted videographer, but I guess it was a bit trollish if I think about it. So, but that made me feel bad because that meant there were a lot more views. I only expected like you know maybe a dozen, two dozen people to see it, uh, and now I really wish I had tried harder. Because I had a whole lot of really fun ideas that I, I had contemplated. But again, it was just I got too lazy. So like I wanted to do something like I was going to say how I uh, here's my video. And then at the end of it, I was going to say how it was all about the Benjamins. But I was actually uh, because I do I used to collect coins. I still have a small coin collection. And so I actually before there were JFK 50 cent pieces, there are Benjamin Franklin 50 cent pieces. And so I was going to just start throwing these Benjamin Franklin 50 cent pieces on the table. This here and 
pounds. I have like two, uh, three bucks worth, <laughs> but, but they're all individual. I've sealed them all off, you know, so they don't, uh, they don't continue to tarnish. And I was like, I don't want to rip all those open just for this. <laughs> so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. You, need to, you have, you have to hurt for your craft. You have to be willing yeah. to go to the extreme. Yeah, I, I just thought, I thought so. I had, I had some of that, and I had a couple other ideas, and I thought so that would be really funny. Uh, but anyway, as of Friday, I went ahead to YouTube and I loaded the stats because I was like, I only, I only put it on that on our Facebook page. That was it. And fourteen percent of the views have come from Facebook, but thirty four percent came from Fun with Bonus, twenty three percent came from Pinside. So I guess someone shared the video there, and fifteen percent came from a site called PinballInfo.com, which uh, I didn't even know existed. So, okay, what all of that told me was that people are very hungry for content that makes fun of stern, stupid applications. So if you're out there and you haven't made a video, you should make one. But you don't have to do the paper application if you're just doing a stupid video. Uh, in our show notes, I do have a link to the uh, video that I made. I also have a link to Jeff's video. Uh, Jeff is co-host of the Pinball Podcast. He was also in the Fun With Bonus piece. I really liked his video a lot. I thought it was a lot more clever than mine. He utilized starving children, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, and I should have I should have starved something in order to have more sympathy points. But the only uh, thing available was I was hungry when I got home. And I don't think people would look at me and go, yeah, you d- definitely need another sandwich. So we did, not, <laughs> we did not go with that. But okay. So given all of this, I guess, just sort of wrap up this, this section on Batman, I'd like to sort of make it more stern focused broadly and a- kind of ask you, Tony, uh, given what we're seeing the, with Batman, do you, where do you think Stern is going? Like in terms of the market, where do you think Stern's going now? Or are they going anywhere new? I don't think they're going anywhere new. I think Stern's going to continue being the grand old lady that she's been. I think they might increase their prices, be what with how, what their prices are setting with like JGP and their competition and stuff. Uh, but I don't think they're really going to do anything. I think the major change is going to be the LCD edition. And I don't see them doing anything more severe than that to change up what is currently working very well for them. I mean, there's there's no reason for them to. Yeah, I uh, my sense is that I I think Stern may maybe pivoting a little. I think the pivot already started before Batman. But what I th- I think is Stern is trying harder now to exploit the collector market. Now I think this has been pretty obvious. The question is, will it work? And I think it will, because I think the demand still exists for more on the high-end collector side. Now, and as I noted when we were talking about the pro and what potential pro pricing versus what the potential pricing for the premiums that aren't Batman and such are moving forward, the question that I think it raises for a lot of us, a lot of people who are kind of like me, is will it squeeze out lower-income collectors? And my response is, much like when we were talking about the pro, not necessarily. Not everyone who collects pinball collects for different reasons. Not everyone collects for scarcity. Do I have a pinball collection? I do. Do I collect rare pins? I don't specifically try to. I think I've gone through what what ones I have run numbers on. I don't think I've ever owned a pin that didn't have at least a thousand units made. So I would say I do not collect rare pins, but I don't go after them specifically because of rarity. I get pinball machines because they have gameplay elements that I want. That's how I acquire at this point. So for me, when I have people come over, 
I don't have them come over to gush at the value of the collection. I want them to play the games. And so I try and get games that I think people will enjoy, qualifying it with that I have to enjoy the game as well, or else I won't buy. But so in that regard, it comes down to what happens with the pro model. I'm certain Stern's going to keep making pros. So it's just a question of if that price point's going to change and if it's going to change by how much. Every person who buys, even if they aren't just pro buyers, but every person who buys has a range where they will where they'll tap out. There's at some point where everyone will will say that is too much for new inbox. I'm going to stick with the used market. I think a lot of people who buy new and perhaps especially those who have been more LE focused have been comforted by the notion that they can probably get next to all of their money back that they paid like there's no depreciation. They'll get back all their money if they sell. But they have the potential to make money if they get the next Tron LE and then they can flip it and they'll get a whole bunch of money or if they get an America's Most Haunted and it's going to be worth more even if they open it. So it's kind of like it's that it's the gamble of trying to buy the machine that will be ultimately really valuable. But it's not like the burns have been very bad, whereas, oh, I got a real bad dog. I got, you know, Avengers LE, which is not seen as a more a very popular LE, but it's not like Avengers LE sells for 2,500 bucks. I mean, you still get most of your money back. So uh, I don't expect to see prices collapse, but what I think is ultimately going to happen with this sort of trending is we're going to see the older stuff, the older pins probably isn't going to increase at the rap, at the rapid rate we've seen over the last five or six years. And the newer stuff may finally stop selling used at new uh, or near new in box pricing might actually start to fall a little bit. Nothing is ever going to collapse. I think pinball holds its value and will continue to hold its value better than a lot of other things. But I think we might be finally getting towards the days where if you bought a pro machine and you stuck in some cliffy protectors that you get to have your whole new in box price back. I think that might finally be at an end and we'll start seeing some price drops on some of these on the less collectible side, just because of, uh, you know, pinball is becoming more and more popular, uh, but the number of people who can actually buy machines isn't increasing at the same volume as the popularity. You know, there's reasons for that. But I just I think that the market, I don't think the market's saturated per se, but there are a lot of players in it now. So I just don't think everything can keep going for near new inbox pricing used just because there's too much variety out there and people aren't going to it's not like there's not enough pins anymore, so to speak. Yeah, I won't disagree with that. Um I do think the used market is moving towards a plateau and a collapse. Um, and the, the bubble is going to burst, as it were. Uh, it's just going to be a question of how much longer is it going to ride out. I've never understood the whole collecting pinball machines as an investment. But when it comes to hobbies... I've got hobbies of stuff that I haven't touched in two years, but I still have the stuff and it's not worth anything. I have it because of the same reason I originally picked it up is because I loved it. I loved the theme. I loved whatever it was. And I will, you know, when I get more free time, I will move into it and do it again. But the whole investment portion of it, of the investment collectors, I've never understood that. I mean, I understand you can get good money that way and it lets you, rotate your collection with a certain amount of seed money, as it were, 
and then you can just go, well, I sold this for this, and then I, that's, you know, the the next game I'm going to replace it with was $500 less than that, so I'm out nothing more than I already had. I may actually made $500 on this sale. I understand it. It's just not how I approach hobbies. Right. So to me, how, to me, I don't, I wouldn't be buying games like that if I could afford games at this time. I would be buying games that are fun and are on my short list of, hey, that game's awesome for whatever reason. Whatever reason I like that game, I would be going for a game. And if I can resell it for what I bought it for or close to what I bought it for, okay. But I'm not going to be going, well, I bought this game new new in box, and now I'm going to set it in my storage unit for 15 years without ever even opening the box. So I can sell it for more money. That's mm-hmm. just not how I think. Why would you spend? I can't see why I would spend money to invest on something like that and then not play it or do anything with it. Right, and I don't think most people do. Uh, but I, I don't think that the, I don't think there is a bubble. So I don't, I don't think a bubble will burst. I think that a plateau will be reached. I don't think we're going to see a day, the days where. Uh, attack from Mars sells for twenty five hundred dollars again, though. I think that's. I think it just quits going up. I think Hollywood Heat doesn't rise to a two thousand dollar pin, but it also doesn't fall back down to being a five hundred dollar pin. I think because while pinball's popularity may eventually plateau, the desire for getting new machines is going to subsume the desire for by more and more people to want just the old stuff. They're still. The tiering of people are going to want a machine. Old stuff's going to be more affordable than new stuff. That's kind of what's pushed some of those pins up a little bit. And that's still going to exist because there aren't more old pins. Remakes aside, like Medieval Madness, there are just uh, fewer because eventually people, you know, combine two to make a decent, you know, one of a version sort of thing. So there's always that that's affecting them. I just don't think, you know, like how uh, Jurassic Park, for example, which I bought for, uh, just over uh, two thousand. Had I gotten it uh, two and a half years ago, I probably could have gotten it for fifteen hundred. Uh, I don't think Jurassic Park is going to become a uh, three thousand dollar game in two more years. But I also don't think it's going to fall back below fifteen hundred. It just it. I think they're going to most of the pins are just going to sit at what they've reached and so plateau out. But I don't think of it as a bubble in the sense that other than maybe a few of the top end games, just because most games haven't seen just tremendous like multifold increases in their cost the only those a-list williams games i think would be the most susceptible to be called auto bubble where they've just rapidly gone up to higher than new in box pricing but anything less than new in box pricing has the advantage of being less than new in box so it becomes more affordable to people but we'll have to see i because who knows yeah um i think that it's time to move on to our next pinball topic um which would be Spooky has released some details on their newest game. Yes, we don't want to leave Spooky out. We did have Spooky news this week as well. Uh, Less to go over, thankfully, than these other two items, because we've already spent a lot of time on pinball. But the uh, next machine, Spooky game number three, we still don't know what it is, but we do know that the run size has been increased to 500 units. Rob Zombie, I believe, was 300. The price... It was $6,000. They are increasing that $250, so it's $6,250. And 
As I noted, we do not know what theme they are running with yet, though. From what I've been reading online, it seems to be some sort of licensed theme, as I think you would expect. So I guess, uh, Tony, you what? any thoughts uh, regarding Spooky? Um, I think they're doing a nice slow build. Uh, not not like a slow build of the machines, but they're doing a nice slow build of their company and how it's going since, I mean, they sold Rob Zombie out really quick. Uh, they learned a lot in their creation of America, America's Most Haunted. And I think instead of trying to go just feet first in huge, like some places do, I kind of like the slow build they're doing. I think it makes a very firm foundation for them. And a place that as they're getting bigger and they keep increasing their, now that their new little factory's up and they keep increasing the machines they can build. I mean, I don't necessarily think that they're ever going to be like a Stern or or one of these really huge people. But I think that they are definitely going to be, I see nothing that makes me think they're not going to be just a solid small end uh producer who's always there and puts out solid games i mean i haven't had any issues with any of their games that i've played uh again i haven't put a lot of time in on them i've enjoyed the themes a lot and i think the machines that they have put out have been pretty solid all in all I think that we're they're going to be kind of a uh, rock of the small end uh, niche producer, and that they're probably going to just keep doing what they're doing and be very successful at it. Yeah, I uh, overall I think this is broadly pretty good news. I'd say the they didn't the indication was the price increase uh, is to go towards improving quality. I, you know, I'm skeptical about whether or not the price increase at this time was smart for them because I think them uh, being on the lower end compared to a lot of the other boutique manufacturers is a plus. Uh, but this isn't a dramatic increase, and the biggest complaint I've seen from people about the first two spooky titles is the sort of homebrew feel, the homebrew look they still have. So if they can inject that $250 into getting a more professional product look to it, I think it will help because that that seems to be the biggest criticism. And a lot of people really want to support them as a as a small uh, little guy manufacturer trying to pull itself up by its bootstraps. So I think that's good. Um, as I've noted on past podcasts, I've I've noted that I would like to see Spooky move away from using the limited run count as a crutch to uh, guarantee sales, like what they had to do with America's Most Haunted. And I think this volume increase is a good experiment for them. Uh, if they sell out still, then I think it continues to show that they can loosen their hold on doing the false scarcity model in order to make sales, that their build quality and their license picks will be good enough. They won't just be relying on the that pinball as an investment market where people want to buy the game, keep it in the box like you were noting, and then sell it for more than what they paid. So this this continues in that trend, which I've wanted to see. So I think that's good. The uh, theme obviously is going to matter. I'm hoping it's a bigger theme, a more popular broadly theme than Rob Zombie was. Uh, Rob Zombie as a theme definitely helped versus what America's Most Haunted was. So I, you know, if they continue to grow in that regard. I think that's great. And so for me, I think Spooky has two main issues that they need to tackle to kind of get to the, and I'll air quote it, the next level. Uh, the first would be that I there are, as I noted on the pricing thing, a lot of people still think the pins look homebrew. 
I thought Rob Zombie looked pretty good, uh, especially compared to America's Most Haunted. I think it looked like a big step up on the play field, and the cab art was stellar. But it was still a cited factor from people who played the game more than I did. So uh, the experience they're gaining as they build more and more pins, I think, is what's going to advance that. If not that, then hopefully the $250 more per machine will. And then the second next level thing I think is they need to get a killer layout going. I don't think I've ever seen uh, any true excitement about any of the gameplay designs they've unveiled so far. I'm not saying that they need to tap a classic big name designer. They don't need to bring in a Lawler or anything. But I just, I really think they need to get something where the big talk about isn't that, hey, look, this is a small manufacturer. Look at how they're able to actually manufacture and sell pins, which is great. I really want to see people say, you need to get spooky game number three because the gameplay is so awesome. Not the theme is so awesome, but the gameplay. I think that's the one element that I've not seen any real true excitement about yet is that they have incredible gameplay. And that's what I want to see them to be able to do because I think that's what gets them to the next level. Yeah, I can definitely see uh, what you're talking about, the gameplay. I mean, I, as you recall, I never got a chance to play Rob Zombie, so I can't say a thing on its gameplay. I did play America's Most Haunted. Several, I've played it several times, and its gameplay's all right. But they don't have something that just stands out and screams as anything special. I mean, I don't see where they had anything that's really problematic. None, nothing I've played has stuff where it's just like, well, that just doesn't work. That just doesn't. That just doesn't feel good. It's just there's nothing that screams out special. Right now, they seem very solid, um, middle of the field type. Uh, play fields where it's just there's nothing bad there's nothing special it's just there and the big things that they're grabbing on is a people have got already gotten to the point where they like they trust their name they like their themes and i think that like you said a really good uh, theme combined with a play field that actually that, that, that steps up a notch to it doesn't even have to be you know like great play field or something super magical but just something that makes enough of a a, a a grab that it really gets a hold of people is going to take things to a whole different level for them and i don't know if they're ever going to be a big enough producer to get away from the whole limited number production um They've increased their production ability, but it, they're still not like a. It's a huge factory floor, and they can just turn out thousands and thousands of machines. I don't know if they'll ever be a huge top-notch producer without making some major changes to what makes spooky pinball spooky pinball. But I can definitely see them filling the niche that they are currently filling. I mean, they are a solid, reliable, small producer that they're probably more reliable than most of the other producers out there right now uh, on hitting their dates and doing all the exact stuff they say when they say it or close to when they say it. And they definitely have not fallen into the trap that some companies do of going, look at this bit of awesomeness that we haven't actually started any design work on, but this is what it's going to be. And it's going to be awesome. You're going to love it. You'll see it in a year. And then four years later, the machine is available. 
Yeah. The the thing with the run count for me that that why I want them to hopefully eventually get to the point where they don't need to do that is if they have a killer theme, killer layout, killer game, we'll just say, that lots of people want. I hate for them to be bo- to have boxed themselves in by always thinking, well, we're only ever going to make 800 units when they could make and sell 2,000 units rather than just move on to the next game. I understand there is a desire for a company to want to get, you know, get to the next product. And I understand that they as a company with their size, it may not be feasible for them to keep four different possible games on the line where they'll do a batch of Rob Zombies and then do a batch of game number threes and then a batch of dominoes and that they don't want to shift to that. But the while far scarcity can mean people want to buy the game because they're very confident that it won't lose value, if they actually have something that commands a lot of interest, it can box them in where all you end up with is a really high value on the secondary market. And that was money they left on the table. And I don't want them to get screwed by that. So I think as they get as they get further and further along, for them just to say, all right, we're going to do game number four. We're not going to tell you how many we're going to make. Maybe they only make 500, but they don't promise that it's only 500. That way, if the interest is there and they can do 600, do 600. No problem. So there's no downside to it. If they can be assured that they'll hit whatever sales number they want to hit without telling people, oh, it's limited. Because they're not doing an LE version on game number three, but in a way, all their games are LE versions because they're announcing their production run counts and they're capping them. I think that they'll be more successful without doing that because I think they've already built enough trust that they don't need that anymore. That's why I call it a crutch. I don't think they need to do that anymore. But if they're more comfortable continuing to do that, that's fine. It just means some people who might want to get spooky games can't because they can't get in on them new and they don't want to pay how much they go for used because they go for too much used. So that's really all. That's the only issue on it. But I, I understand why they do it the way they do it. I just I've, I, I have faith that they'll, they'll be able to move past that. Speaking of moving past, uh, you know, we spent over an hour on pinball. I think it's time we move past it. Yeah, I, I, I will not disagree with you on that fact. Okay, let's go into our second topic, video games. And I would like to start with a game that you actually talked about a long time ago, back in episode three, actually, and that's called Firewatch. The reason why I'm bringing up Firewatch is that uh, it is now out on the Xbox One. It had already been out on PC and PS4 for quite a while. And this is not an Xbox podcast, but... S- I think it's noteworthy because when it came out on the Xbox, they also released some new features for the game. And those features are not just on the Xbox, they're on all the versions. And so Firewatch now has a free play mode. So when you finish playing the game, you can actually go back and keep playing it if you want to. And then they've added a new commentary mode. And from what I understand, the commentary mode has over three hours of content, audio content that you can actually listen to with over 80 tapes that you go around and play. I guess there are new visual things in that mode. It's designed as a mode that you go and you play, kind of like watching the commentary mode on a DVD. It's going back after you've won the game and playing the commentary mode version of the game instead. Uh, and I want to go ahead and note that we will, in the show notes, have a link to... Uh, podcast unlocked uh, it's 264th episode because the two creators of firewatch were uh, guest hosts or interviewees sort of on the entire episode there 
and it's really, really interesting. So if you're really into Firewatch, I do suggest you go and check that out. But Tony, I wanted to just ask, sort of ask, uh, because you've actually played Firewatch. I still have not. Uh, what do you think of the commentary concept and uh, the free roam mode? I was a little curious. I mean, when I heard the ge- about the game originally, I my first thought wasn't that it needed a free roam mode. So I don't know what what that what that mode means to you. Well, I think the free roam mode is there's a, there are some things in the game that you can miss completely. Uh, little hints and clues to stuff that can be missed. And I just think free roam mode would let you hunt down everything so you will have found everything even if you didn't find it during your actual playthrough. Oh, okay. Um, like, I know I watched a video. I watched a, a guy's Let's Play who went all the way through, and he found a couple things I didn't find, and I'd found a few things he didn't find. So there's always a couple things in there that you can see or miss or things that were down. Well, you know, if you turn, you need to turn left, but if you turned right here instead, you would have found this other little thing. Um, on the, the, I think the commentary actually sounds really interesting because the story and the world and everything thrown together in Firewatch was so almost movie-like or almost, I mean, because it, it's all character-driven, that having the commentary uh, track type thing where you could find out and see what they were thinking and what their stuff was. I can see where it's being, where it'd be really interesting. Uh, there are some movies that I've watched commentary tracks to. I don't normally watch commentary tracks. They're not something I normally find all that interesting. Uh, sometimes there are things that are, uh, cool. And sometimes there's commentary tracks on stuff that are kind of creepy, but, for the most part, it's something that I'd have to really, really love a movie to want to, to be interested in the commentary tracks. And here's the thing is, is I really loved Firewatch. It was a lot of fun. Um, I haven't replayed it. I've thought about it uh, and going through making different choices and this and that. But that game, even depending on how you make the choices, it's always going to be... It's going to end up the same. The only things that are going to change are going to be the kind of conversations and how everything works between you and the lady on the radio, how that turns out and how you interact. It's the only things that are going to change. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, the free roam thing, I, I, I always think it's sort of a good idea to give that as an option. just reminds me of when Fallout 3 came out and until they had a DLC pack – uh, that gave it, you actually couldn't play the game anymore after you finished the story, which made sense from a plot perspective, but was kind of frustrating from a sandbox game perspective. It's just, I don't normally associate narrative games with that sort of approach, but I think it's generally a good idea if there's anything that you want to explore to give that as an option to be able to take advantage of. Uh, sort of same thing with uh, the commentary concept. It sounds like, a after hearing the interview, uh, it sounds like a really cool... Uh, amount of effort they put in to give you a whole bunch of stuff but yeah i think you have to kind of be really into the making sausage aspect to to care that much about it or be really into the uh to this story in particular uh one of the things that i actually thought was uh that i could have known but i didn't ahead of time was that i did not realize that these two uh behind firewatch the writer of firewatch in particular was the writer behind telltale season one of the walking dead which 
now I'm very interested in Firewatch because I think uh, season one Walking Dead Telltale was the second best Telltale game I've played. So and it just it story wise worked really really well, and I I think most everyone would agree that it was season one of the walking dead that put telltales point and click adventure style back on the map. You know, before that they had Jurassic park, which seems a pretty terrible game. Uh, and since then they've had a, you know, sort of tried and true approach to doing these episodic stories, uh, using their engine and their engine ain't great, but they hide behind the writing. And if they have good writing, it you'll suffer through their engine problems. They have a new engine now, but I still remember the old one traumatically. They have a new engine? I didn't realize they'd gotten a new engine. Yeah, I don't know with which game it first uh, was unveiled, but yeah, there was some sort of new engine. I, I think, I th- believe, I, no, I'm get, I th- want to think I heard that the new Batman game uses the new engine, but yeah, you know, I, I might be mistaken. The, and I know the people behind Firewatch have been working with a new iteration of their software as well for something. I don't know what. Though. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to see what comes of the whole this whole that whole genre uh more story driven uh less you know actiony i mean i don't want to say less actiony but they're more like almost like choose your own adventure style games with some in- gaming interaction but it's more about the story than anything else yeah it kind, uh, it kind of reminds me of the old uh, sierra adventure games except more story focused rather than puzzle Right, right. That yeah. Well, puzzle games are a thing of the past. I hope. Uh, I I was never a big puzzle game guy. Oh, uh, there's a hey, Jim. Jim's of War is a puzzle game. It's a matching puzzle game. Ooh. I'm still working on level seventy one now. But speaking of levels, you went ahead and and got uh, leveled up on Steam because you purchased Mad Max. Yep, I picked up Mad Max. They had a uh, there was a Steam sale last weekend. Uh, where they had like everything, all the WB related games and stuff like that were on sale, and I picked up Mad Max for ten bucks. Wow! And yeah, I, and I've put uh, I'm over seventeen hours into the game since I picked it up. Um, it's been a lot more fun than I expected. The um, best thing is easily uh the vehicular combat and just the driving and everything that's fun it, i think it's pretty well done all in all um the ground combat when you're out of your car is pretty standard uh kind of beat em uppy uh where you just you just wail away on a guy and keep a watch out for all the other guys around you. And when you get a notification of an attack, you try to parry it. So you kind of just bounce from attacker to attacker. And there's finishes like you can shiv a guy or, or, you know, you can, you can, when you're in the middle of punching a guy down, you can jam your shotgun into his gut and take him out and this and that. But it's pretty much just a standard beat em up type ground combat. It's not that it's nothing special. Um, but what I really liked and what I would uh what it really got me thinking about as I was playing it was I would like to see a version of Fallout that had that had, you know, Fallout's ground combat, Fallout's story, and Fallout every, all the normal you know, and the whole Americana uh Fallout universe type thing. 
that had vehicular combat and vehicular, just the ability to make and mod vehicles and do this and that. Now, vehicles aren't something you ever see in Fallout other than just completely abandoned trash stuff, other than the occasional giant freaking airship and the occasional perfectly working aircraft. But ground vehicle-wise, there's never anything really. But it really got me thinking that between this... And all the recent news coming out about um, the uh, the re-release of like Red Dead Redemption and this and that, that was that, you know, horses or motorcycles or just a vehicle type thing that you could put into a Fallout setting would be really awesome. <laughs> yeah, in a way, I, as you mentioned, it, it it's interesting that Fallout never has user-controlled vehicles. I'll, I say that because so many sandbox open world style games do. I mean, they don't all do it very well, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, I guess maybe the thought is, you know, it feels more like a wasteland when you have to hoof it. Yeah. And I can see that. It's just, it's occasionally weird that sometimes it's like, well, yeah, these guys are super high tech. They still have these airplanes, but they don't have a motorcycle. And there's no horses left. I, all the horses died. <laughs> well, they are single hooved. It was <laughs> so. It, it's just one of those things that, like I said, Mad Max has been. The game looks beautiful. Um, well, like I was playing, and just everything about how the game looks looks really nice. Uh, I was like in a in a really bad like dust storm, and the sun was coming up or going down, and it tinted and it looked nice and it was pretty and it's been that's all good. Uh, the ground combat's boring, but the whole concept of taking that wasteland and combining it with something with a better story. Now, don't get me wrong; it's not that the story on Mad Max is bad. It's just very, there's nothing real special about it other than the the fact that they have like the greatest villain names ever. Like like, like the main bad guys is Scrotus. <laughs> it's Scabius Scrotus. And there's some that are get really bad. Well, yeah, and when I first came out, I heard it was real buggy, and I heard it had all sorts of issues, and people were saying it was terrible. And then I was reading a bunch of people, I don't know, a month or two ago, I was re- online reading, and people were talking, well, yeah, I've played through the game four times, and I like it. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's it's better, and it's got this and that. And then when I saw the sale for $10, it was just like, it's 10 bucks. I, I can spend 10 bucks to try out a game that looks kind of interesting. So... All right, well, let's move into our uh, final segment, Tabletop, which we only have one thing to talk about, a super secret game. We got to keep it secret, keep it safe. Yeah, we finally got a chance to sit down with Secret Hitler. Uh, Our monthly game night was last night, and one of the attendees got their copy uh, from the Kickstarter. And to start with, this game is beautiful it comes in an amazing box for the kickstarter backers and every single thing about it is the highest quality and really well done it was like a box within a it was like the inception of games yeah the inception of hitler i have no clue if the production models are going to be that nice i would guess not 
Mm. Uh, they haven't actually started putting out the production games yet. Uh, they're hoping to after, or they're planning on it from what I read after they finish the, uh, Kickstarter rewards. But having played the game now, I deeply, deeply regret not backing the Kickstarter because this game is amazingly fun. Yeah, it was it was a blast to play. I guess to give a quick summary about kind of how, what the rule system is, you you don't know. Broadly speaking, you have a group of people, and everyone's assigned to a party. You're either a liberal or you're a fascist, and there are more liberals than there are fascists in the game. One of the fascists is Hitler. Hitler does not know who anyone is. The liberals don't know who anyone is. But at the start of the game, the non-Hitler fascists know who each other are and they know who Hitler is. So as the game goes about, the liberals are trying to win by enacting enough liberal policies that they fill out the board and they win the game. The fascists are trying to win by either filling out the board with fascist policies or getting Hitler elected as chancellor. And so every turn, there is a president, and the president rotates around the table, and that president picks a person who they want to be their chancellor, and the rest of the players get to vote, whether they agree with that slate of officers or not. And either it's adopted, and then the president gets to draw three policies, they discard one of them, they give two policies to the chancellor, and the chancellor picks one to play. So that's where it then becomes a social interaction game in the extreme, because when a person play when the chancellor plays the policy you know they might play a fascist policy and i might go you're a fascist and they might say well the president gave me only two fascist policies and the president might say that's right i did because i drew three so i had to give you a fascist only fascist policies and the only option but of course everyone could be lying we all could be lying we don't know and so when tony and i were playing this and we played it in a group of seven the first game uh, went. I was secret Hitler actually in the first game, and my my team did win. But it was it was very much the learning game, and so everyone was by and large pretty quiet, just trying to make sure they were following the rules and and all of that. But as of the second game, it got loud, it got vicious, and it got heated because the lying started to happen in full force. Oh and, yeah, it did. And the drama was was turned all the way to Spinal Tap 11 values and it was a blast. Yeah. Now, I will say um this game huge huge amount of fun uh playing with people you know, which at the same time makes it kind of hard because sometimes you run into the things where you know you can tell when somebody's lying just simply through uh, how long you you've known them or this or that? Uh, yeah, but, we, we had a couple of people that had really bad tells, for example. Uh, yeah, they and they've been told so they can work on. They need to work on that. They have it. You know, they got to work through their issues. Uh, Tony and I have a propensity to get loud <laughs> to get loud because <laughs> our 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 volume will mean we're truthful. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I'm loud. That's untruthful. Don't you hear the passion? Of course, I have I have a, a, a tendency to get loud anyway. It's just what I do when I get excited and get into something. Uh, Mike, also, who guest hosted the uh, last episode, he was uh, one of the seven, and he would get really, really quiet, and that actually worked quite well for him. So we, he was Hitler one game, and I never suspected. I thought he might be a fascist, but I never thought he was Hitler. Yeah, no, I didn't think he was Hitler at all. He was somebody that I wasn't willing to say for sure was a liberal, but I was. I thought he was. 
there was a good chance of it. And uh, we were wrong. Yeah. And I mean, because you can have a fascist play a liberal policy to try and, you know, throw off suspicion. And there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance that can go into it. Do you play the long game? It's risky because you play the long game too long. You'll hand a victory to the other side. Yeah. Uh, um, or you can do, I mean, like I, in one of the rounds, I was a fascist and the only thing, and the, uh, there were, cause we, the, with seven players were two fascists and a Hitler and the other fascist got caught out like fricking round, like the second round of voting. It was almost <laughs> immediately that the, the, that the other one got caught out. Yeah. And at that point, uh, all I did as the fascist was try to pull as much heat onto me because I knew he was completely burned and he couldn't do anything at all. Uh, but I thought if there was enough heat pulled onto me to be a fascist and spread to a couple other people, which is all I did is I was like, well, I, I'm liberal, but we, we, we just know he said that that's what that card said. And, and, we know that he's put down a bunch of fascist cards, and I'll admit I put down a fascist card. Hey, I I was given two fascist cards. I had to do it, and it just I, I was fine with pulling all the heat to just because Hitler wasn't even under threat yet. So yeah. there was like there was like one person at the table who had any wondering about who even had any thought about who Hitler was, and just thought they were a fascist maybe. But there, nothing had happened yet. So all I was trying to do, because there was enough fascist uh, policies in play for Hitler to win, get a Hitler win as the chancellor, that all I was trying to do was keep uh, enough stuff thrown around that it would be seen as a good idea to make Hitler chancellor because nobody knew it was Hitler. And it's like, well, you're the like one person who doesn't have any real threat on you. You haven't really done anything that would make me think that you're a bad guy. And it worked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of fun. I know you've seen uh, with uh, the let's play, you've seen the actual full 10 person crews. I, oh I, yeah. I liked having seven. I think this game definitely benefits the more you have because it just gets a lot harder to figure out who's who. I, I would like to, I would like to play in a 10 player game at this point. My, my only concern is this is a great game with friends game. I don't know if it would work as well with a whole bunch of strangers or if it would work better, but it depends upon the strangers. I mean, because when you're with friends, no matter what you're saying or how much you're lying or what you're doing, it's not anything that's ever taken personally. It's just part of the game. But you never know when you're playing with strangers who takes what personally and what who doesn't. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess the advantage to playing with strangers is you you would go in not knowing anyone's tells or anything, and so it would make it harder in a lot of ways. But on the flip side, what I like about personally, I think it's I'd probably be better with friends, uh, and I I'm going to base that off of even though you may know their tells, they probably know what you think their tells are. They may try and and manipulate on that. You can tease them about their tells as part of the, you know, that was part of the thing is we, <laughs> we had, you know, one person, he just, he wouldn't, when he was, when he was called out and it was true, he wouldn't deny it strongly. He would just kind of just sit there like, like his silence would save him. And so <laughs> he, but and he listens to this podcast. And so he knows that he became, I had to little Nicky him and he was the, or the Austin powers him actually. And, and say, you are the, you were the diet Coke of evil. 
your diet Coke. So he was the diet Coke. And we had another guy and he, uh, he would blink rapidly. My sister was playing. She knows you blink rapidly. You, you are a liar. You are a rapid eye blinky. Sir blinks a lot. And so he became Sir Blinks a lot and he, he realized and he just he got so embarrassed because he realized that's true. He was such a bad liar that he blinks when he does it. And now he knows. So he could try and fake that out in the future. Whereas if he was a stranger, we wouldn't have told him that we would have kept the tell to ourselves. But but anyway, it, it is a lot of fun. Uh, is there a way people who didn't get in on the Kickstarter can play this game? Uh, yeah, they do have on their website, which you can just Google it. It's just Secret Hitler. Uh, they have a free print and play version of the game, so you can just print out all the tokens and everything you need, and you can play it. Also, I know if you're playing with friends online using Skype, you can use uh, Tabletop Simulator. Has mm-hmm. it set up in Tabletop Simulator so you can play? And they will be selling actual production runs. Um, hopefully before too long, uh, hopefully before Christmas is what I'm kind of hoping. But, um, while I doubt they'll be as nice as the Kickstarter runs were, it's still, it's a game that it's worth having for me. Uh, I've definitely going into my collection of games. Oh yeah. I I really want to play this one again. And yeah. it's, it is by, isn't it by the people who did cards against humanity? Uh, some of them, yeah, some of, them? Some of okay. yeah, some of them, and some uh, and a few others, and it, it's it's definitely a really good game. You know, I kind of almost want to take it to. Wow, that's a thought. Uh, a couple of the big pinball things would be fun. I was thinking, like, like if we taking it and doing a big thing at like, uh, like next time we go to a convention or something, maybe. Mm. If, yeah, that'd be fun. Well, I remember when Jack was on, he talked about how a lot of conventions and stuff they do werewolf. I could see how right. werewolf people they would take to this. Yeah, duck to water because that'd be it'd just be kind of a fun thing because you know when you're when you're when you're at that oh I don't want to walk around stuff and everybody's just kind of sitting out around a table somewhere BS and having something you could just pop out and I mean once you know how to play the game the game plays quick and it'd be. Yeah. And really, after that first game, everyone got really comfortable right after we were through the first game. There were very few blunders after the after the first one where everyone was ultra cautious because uh, you look at the book and you think, oh, this might be a bit overwhelming. It, it proceeds pretty well. Uh, yeah, most it of does. Our, most of the delays were when we got into ultra accusation mode in the later games. Where, yeah, where, we got to points where it was like, okay, can, can, can we vote now? Because we're basically just repeating the exact same arguments against each are other for like eyeballing the ninth each time. other, trying to see if they give away some sort of clue <laughs> before you have a you know tiebreaker vote or something. But well, that's the show. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. As a reminder, you can interact with us, uh, Facebook. You can reach us at facebook.com slash eclectic gamers podcast. You can always email us eclectic gamers podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at eclectic underscore gamers and Instagram as eclectic underscore gamers. And that's it. So, uh, thanks again for listening and we'll see y'all in two weeks. See you later. <laughs>